Uh, my name is Derek, and I will now be reading today's passage from 2 Corinthians 12, uh, verses 7 to 10. So please follow along in your own Bibles or on the screen behind me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the reading of God's word. All right. Well, I'm excited to announce our last guest speaker uh, for our guest speaker series this month uh, with us. And we're so blessed and I'm really excited to have Pastor Jeremy Treat. Uh, Pastor Jeremy is the lead pastor of Reality Los Angeles. He's also an adjunct professor of theology at Biola University. So he's a world-renowned biblical scholar. Uh, married to Tiffany, he has four daughters. So he's a very blessed man. He's also a Clippers fan. So he needs deep prayer as well for that. Uh, but other than that, I'm really excited to have Jeremy here. Uh, I've been really blessed from his ministry afar, and I'm excited to him to share the words. So if you give him a hand as he comes up to give the word. Thank you, brother. All right. Good morning, True North Church. Uh, it's so good to be with you. I'm, I'm actually originally from Alaska and then lived a good portion of my life in Seattle. Been in Los Angeles for a little over 10 years now. But today, I am so grateful to be here with you all. Uh, I'm really grateful for Eugene and for Jay and for the leadership team here and the way that they faithfully lead and serve you all and pointing you to Christ. And I'm just grateful for you as a church of being here in Palo Alto, uh, following Jesus together, witnessing to him. I'm grateful for you. I'm going to be praying for you. And I'm honored to be able to come and serve the church today and hopefully encourage you all uh, through the word of God. So I'm preaching today on 2 Corinthians 12, talking about power and weakness. And I'll tell you what, this sermon today is a sermon for people who are struggling, people who are on the verge of giving up, people who are hurting, people who feel like they can't keep it all together, people who feel inadequate. And the reality is that that's most of us. I mean, some of you might be here today and be like, oh, this doesn't apply to me. Like life is just easy for you and you're crushing it and feeling great about everything. And if that's you, praise God, that's great. But I want you to know, most of the people who are sitting in your row are struggling at some level. And today I wanna to talk to you and I want to talk to you as a church, as a community, of what it looks like for us to be able to say, I'm a mess, but I'm God's mess. And I'll tell you what, that's hard for me, because growing up, I was taught essentially to avoid weakness. I would hide weakness, I would cover up weakness, I would try and show only my strength. And I saw a little bit of where this came for me recently. I went to my mom's house, and I was there with my brother, and we pulled out this box of pictures. And so we pull out this box of old family photos, and we're going through it. This is what you did before, you know, you just scrolled through, uh, you know, the last 15 years on your phone. And we're looking at these old pictures of our family in the 80s, okay? And I'm a little kid, and I found this uh, family photo of us. And there I am. I've got a mullet. Okay, you know what a mullet is? Business in the front, party in the back. 
All right, my, my sister's got these like bangs that go like this. My dad's wearing a fanny pack. It's just like neon colors, 80s, everything you could imagine. We're looking at this picture, kind of laughing at what we're wearing and all this stuff. But then I noticed in the background of the picture something that I hadn't seen. I'd looked at these pictures a lot, but I hadn't noticed in the background, there's a, there's a picture on the wall, and this picture was in my dad's office. And on the wall, there's a plaque, and on it, it says, never admit defeat. And I saw that in the back of the wall with me as this kid, and I, it, it helped me understand how I've become the way I am, because I grew up in a family where we didn't show weakness, and my dad taught me how to be tough, and we watched the Rocky movies, and did pep talks, and I, I played sports, so I never wanted to show that I was injured, and I learned to be strong and power through. I learned to hide weakness, to avoid weakness, to cover up weakness. And when I became a Christian, I began to apply that to my faith, that, okay, I can learn how to do this, and I'm going to show the areas that I'm strong, but then I'm going to hold back in areas that I'm weak, because I don't want to come across like I'm an immature Christian, or like other people would need me. I want to be strong. I want to be independent. But when we open our Bibles, especially to the book of 2 Corinthians, we see a very different way of living. What you have in this passage in 2 Corinthians 12 is an invitation to embrace weakness as a way of experiencing God's strength. That's what I want us to learn this morning. And so I'm going to walk through this passage and draw out three invitations that this passage gives us. And the first one is to embrace your weakness. Now, to understand what this means, I need to share some of the context with you of the book of 2 Corinthians. This is a letter that Paul's writing to a young church in Corinth. Corinth was an ancient city in Greece, but it had been demolished and then rebuilt by Julius Caesar in 44 BC. And so this was a new city. It was young, and Corinth was at an intersection of the ancient world, so you had people from coming, coming from all these different cultures. It was a land of opportunity. People came together. There was upward mobility, lots of resources. And so the culture of Corinth was defined by self-promotion, status. It was a place for impressive people, people who are winning, people who are crushing it, people who look good externally. And so Paul was actually being accused by some leaders in Corinth of not being impressive enough. They said he can't be a real apostle. He's not good looking. He's not as entertaining as the Roman rhetoricians. He's suffered too much to be an apostle of Christ. And so Paul is writing this letter to them, and he's essentially saying to the church in Corinth that weakness is not an obstacle to God's strength. It's the channel of God's strength. And so when you get to 2 Corinthians 12, Paul is very vulnerable. I would say that this is his most personal, vulnerable letter, and chapter 12 is the apex of it. And so he talks about this thorn in the flesh that he has. And we don't know what it was. He doesn't tell us. It could have been a physical ailment. Some people think maybe it was a psychological ailment. It could have been situational. But we don't know. And it's probably better that we don't know. Because it applies to a lot of different types of weakness. And Paul has this thorn in the flesh and he pleads with the Lord. Please take this away, God. Please take this away, God. Please, God, take this away. Three times he pleads with the Lord. And listen to God's response to him in verse 9. God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, 
for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, what I wish that verse said, what I want it to say deep down is that God would say to us, my power is made perfect in your strength. I want to connect with God on my strengths. I want God to use me based on my strengths. That's how I would love for God to work in my life, based on my strengths, to cover up the weaknesses, get rid of those. But that's not what it says. God says, my power is made perfect in your weakness. And let me be clear here. Weakness is not sin, all right? We don't embrace sin. We repent of sin. We turn from it, and we trust in Christ. Weakness, when we talk about embracing weakness, we're not talking about sin. I think weakness is our limitations, It's the trials that we go through. It's our suffering. It's the cumulative effects of living in a fallen world where life is hard. That's what weakness is. At the end of um, 2022, just last fall, I was in a place where I was really down. I had been sick constantly over about a three-month period. Uh, I felt really stressed and overwhelmed with everything um, in the church I was just exhausted. And when people asked me how I was doing, I I would usually just say, I'm stressed, I'm tired, something like that. And then one day I was reading 2 Corinthians. And I got to 2 Corinthians 12, this very passage where the Lord says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. And when I read that, it was like the word weakness jumped off the page and connected with me. I'd been saying I was stressed, I was exhausted, but I saw that word and I I thought, that's how I feel. It's like scripture was giving me a category for something that I was experiencing that I didn't know. And then as soon as I recognized that of, oh, I feel weak, but then God's saying his power is made perfect in our weakness. And it was then that I recognized that weakness is, is this doorway into the mansion of God's strength. And so what I want you to hear today is that if you're weak, you don't have to cover that up. You don't have to hide that. You can embrace it because it's a way of connecting with God who is strong. And listen, I'm not asking you to be weak. It's not like, well, I'm really strong and I'm hearing the preacher say, weakness is good, so I gotta like take it down a notch. I gotta be more weak. No, I'm not asking you to be weak. I'm just asking you to be honest. We're all weak at some level. We're all going through trials. We all have limitations. We all experience the effects of this broken world and go through hardships in life. It's hard one way or or the other. So I'm not saying try to be weak. I'm saying acknowledge it. Acknowledge what's there with God and with others. And I think this is hard for us. It's countercultural. Because we live in a society that prizes independence above all things. And so we associate strength with independence. If I can do it on my own, then I'm strong. If I have to rely on others, then I must be weak. People, people say like, oh, like these Christians, they need God as a, as a crutch. Like, you have a problem with crutches? <laughs> like, is there something wrong with a crutch? Like, we just don't think it's okay to say that we're weak. And we think of, I'm going to be independent. I'm going to be a self-made person. I'm going to be a strong individual. And so when we try and do that as Christians, we take that mentality and think, well, if to be a good Christian, I've got to do it on my own. I've got to do it on my own strength. 
But I would say that the goal of the Christian life is not independence, but reliance. Real strength is when we learn how to rely on God and on others in healthy ways. To be able to say, I am weak. I do have needs. I do have limitations. And it's not, there's nothing wrong with acknowledging that. It doesn't mean that I'm a failure. It means that I'm human. I'm made to need God and to need others. It's okay to be weak. God is strong. Now, I've been talking about 2 Corinthians with my church in Los Angeles all year. We actually just finished going through the, the whole book of 2 Corinthians. We've been talking about power and weakness a lot. And I've had a lot of conversations over the last six months with, with people in our congregation, particularly with Asian Americans in our congregation, who's saying there's, as, there's aspects of their cultural background that make this especially hard. Because when, when they hear embracing weakness, coming very much from an honor-shame culture that's more collectivist than individual, they're saying, it's not just, this isn't just hard because it's, it's me like getting over my pride and acknowledging shortcomings in my life. I'm thinking about my family and how it affects them if I come out and I'm open about this. So uh, the first thing I want to do is just acknowledge that, that this is hard. But I also want to remind you that the culture that Paul is speaking into in ancient Corinth was not the American individualist culture of our mainstream society today. It was very much an honor-shame, collectivist culture. Paul understood the difficulty of this. He understood that this was hard for them to hear, and yet he invites them into it. And I want to remind you, the church is a spiritual family. We've been adopted into God's family by the blood of Christ. And the bond that we have as spiritual brothers and sisters is stronger than even DNA because we're bound together by the blood of Christ. And we're called to be a people who love one another and who can be vulnerable with one another. Now listen, this is going to play out in different cultures in different ways. But God is calling us to acknowledge our weakness, knowing that he is strong. So the first invitation is to embrace your weakness. But second, that leads to experiencing God's strength. Paul's not holding up weakness for weakness sake. It's not like weakness is the end goal. But look with me at verse 10. He keeps going here and he says, For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, illness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's amazing what he says here. When I am weak, then I am strong. I mean, that doesn't even make sense. Like weakness and strength are, are antonyms. How can saying, I am, when I am weak, then I am strong? Well, the reason is he's saying, when I am weak, then I'm able to tap into God's strength. So I'm not strong on my own doing. I'm strong in the strength of the Lord. That's the goal here. The goal is not weakness for weakness sake, but to experience God's strength. But the key to all of this is grace. Because God is strong. But strength can be threatening if you don't know whether someone is for you or not. But God is for us. Not based off of what we've done, but because he's good and gracious and loving. He says to Paul and he says to you, my grace is sufficient for you. That's what we've got to understand to experience God's strength. 
opening ourselves to the posture of surrender, which is at the same time vulnerable in receiving of God's grace. But I think that it's incredibly difficult for us to understand grace in our culture today because we live in a performative culture. Everything is performance. And where you see this the most now is especially in social media. Uh, there's, and there's been a shift in social media. I mean, there was a time where we talked about social networks, but now we talk about social platforms because social media isn't so much about what it was, what it was, what it used to be about connecting with each other. Oh, I can stay in touch with high school friends or friends who live in different cities and know what they're doing. It's shifted from networking to platforms where people perform. And it's often the algorithms are less now about staying connected with people who we know and showing us people who we don't know performing in great ways. So we live in a performative society and everything becomes performance. From the way that we dress, to our work, to our relationships, we live in such a way to be able to project a vision of who we are to the world and then try and keep up with it as if we can live into that image. And what happens is we take this performative mentality and we map it onto our faith with God. And church easily becomes about performance. We work hard to look like a good Christian, to do what's right on the outside, regardless of what's going on in our hearts. And it leads to a transactional relationship with the Lord, where I come before God and I think, okay, I'll go to church, I'll give a little bit of money, I'll read my Bible every once in a while, and I'll do that so that I'll get from God the things that I want from him. I'll get the good grades, I'll get the girlfriend, the boyfriend. I'll get the family that I long for. I'll get the job. Okay, God, I'll do these things if you do that for me. It's a transactional relationship with God based on our performance. But what we learn in the scriptures is that our relationship with God is not based on our religious performance, but on his grace. We have ups and downs. We struggle, then we do well. We struggle. God's grace is constant. And God loves you, not based on how well you're doing today. And his love doesn't go down when you're not doing well. He loves you unconditionally. He's for you because he is loving, because he is gracious. Reminds me of a story of a little boy who wanted his mom to compensate him for all the chores that he was doing around the house. I know that we've got the kids in here today, so maybe you'll understand this. And this kid was doing chores around the house, but he thought that he should get paid for it. And so he left his mom a note in the kitchen saying this, for washing the dishes, you owe me a dollar. For cleaning my room, you owe me a dollar. For hanging up my clothes, you owe me a dollar. For mowing the lawn, you owe me a dollar. Mama, you owe me pay up. He printed a bill for her totaling $4 and left it on the kitchen. So the mother came and saw the note and she put $4 on the kitchen table, but with it left a note of her own. And the note said, for carrying you nine months and being sick as a dog, no charge. For staying up all night with you, night after night when you were sick, no charge. For working overtime so that I could get you those special tennis shoes, no charge for entertaining your friends when you wanted to bring them over without notice, no charge. 
Signed, your mother who loves you. Total, zero. See, we often come to God with our entitlement and our demands, not recognizing that we owe God our very lives and everything that we have from him is a gift of his grace. And yet God comes to us and he responds to our entitlement and our arrogance, not with punishment, but with mercy. Isn't this incredible? I mean, I don't know about you, but so often with God, I'm like a little toddler who thinks I'm smarter than God, who gets frustrated with God when things don't go exactly my way, who tries to make demands of God, and God responds to that by being patient with me and kind with us. Isn't that beautiful? And that's what we're learning in this passage is that when we bring God our weakness, God's not turned off by it. God's not disgusted by it. It actually makes God draw nearer to us in his compassion because he knows that we're dust. He knows that we're weak. And he comes to us and comforts us in our hardest times. I remember a time of my life where I was experiencing depression. And it wasn't clinical depression, but I was really down, had no motivation, struggling. Everything was dark. And I remember what I tried to do in the midst of that was to muscle through, to power through, to uh, muster up my own strength to be able to work through it. And it felt like the harder I tried, the deeper into depression I went. And I remember reading this verse. And I remember God saying to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. And I finally recognized that I don't have to hide that from God. I can bring it to God. And God wanted to meet me in that space. Whatever you're going through right now, God wants to meet you in that space. He's not waiting on the other side of trials and suffering so that you can work your way through it and get to him. He's the God who enters into our trials, into our suffering, into the struggle. And we experience intimacy with him there. And he teaches us to depend on him and to trust in him, to rely on him every day of our lives. And so this passage invites us to embrace our weakness and experience God's strength. And then third, to then endure with resilience. And we need this today as much as ever. There was, a, there was a recent study by Barna Research, and the study was on young adults in their 20s with a Christian background. And here's what they discovered. 22% uh, they referred to as prodigals. These were people who attended church at some point, but no longer identified as Christians. 30% they called nomads. These are people who identified as Christians but were not connected to a church. 38% they referred to as habitual churchgoers. These were people who describe themselves as Christians and attend church from time to time, but they do not have the core beliefs or behaviors associated with being a follower of Jesus. But then only 10% they referred to as resilient disciples. These are Christians who not only go to church on Sundays, but are connected to the church in other ways as well. They believe in the authority of, 
the authority of Scripture. They're committed to Jesus personally, affirming his death and resurrection, and desire to bring transformation outside the church because of their faith. Now, what I want you to hear about this is only 10% of young Christians are resilient disciples. And what does it mean to be resilient? It's, it's the ability to bounce back, to withstand difficult times, to get back up when you get knocked down. 10%. But here's the thing. The call to be resilient is for all Christians, not just a few. And we need it more than ever. Why? I'll give you two reasons why we need a spiritual resilience today. The first is, Many of you have gone through an immense amount of suffering in the last few years. And then some of you are right now. You need spiritual resilience. And then second, you live in a time and in a city where it's not easy to be a Christian. You're going to experience trouble, mockery, maybe even persecution. And when it comes, you need spiritual resilience. And so 2 Corinthians 12 is teaching us about this power in weakness. But what we learn in 2 Corinthians 12 through a teaching, we have modeled to us with beautiful imagery in 2 Corinthians 4. And I want to turn back to that so that you can see this imagery and see what it teaches us about spiritual resilience. So in 2 Corinthians 4, it talks about the gospel as this treasure. It talks about the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's this treasure of the gospel. But then it says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Now, pause right there for a second. Why would you put a treasure in a jar of clay? Jars of clay are, are brittle. They're frail. They're easily broken. Why would you put something that's worth a lot in something that's so frail and can be broken? Well, he tells us, he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And so what you have in this passage is that it acknowledges the pain that comes in life and with following Jesus Paul doesn't say, everything's great. I love the Lord. God bless you, brother, sister. He doesn't just sugarcoat it. He doesn't pretend. He acknowledges it. He says, we're afflicted. We're perplexed. We're persecuted. We're struck down. But what I love about this passage is while it acknowledges the hardship, it does not give hardship the last word. God's grace always gets the last word. And so you may be afflicted in every way, but you're not crushed. You may be perplexed, but you're not driven to despair. You may be persecuted, but not forsaken. You might feel struck down, but you are not destroyed. See, suffering in this life is inevitable, but it's not final. We will experience trials, but they will not ultimately define us because no matter how weak we are, God is our strength. It reminds me of the fourth century pastor theologian named Basil. Basil stood up against the false teaching of his day. And when he did, an Arian emperor told him to stop teaching what he was about Jesus. 
and Basil refused. He kept talking about Jesus. And so the emperor threatened Basil by telling him that he would confiscate his goods. He would send him into exile. He threatened him with torture. He even threatened him by saying that he would kill him. But listen to how Basil responds. Basil said this, all that I have you can confiscate are these rags and a few books. Nor can you exile me, for wherever you send me, I shall be God's guest. As to tortures, you should know that my body is already dead in Christ. And death would be a great boon to me, leading me sooner to God. Isn't that amazing? It's like he's saying, you can't take what I have. Because if I've got God, I've got all that I need. And so what can we do with a Christian like this? Who has this mentality that if you strip me naked, I'm clothed in Christ. If you take my money, I'm rich in Christ. If you take my life, Jesus gives me eternal life. It's like trying to blow out a fire, but it just stokes the flames. And so listen, I know that many of you today, you're here, and you're going through difficulty in life. Maybe you have physical pain in your life. Maybe you have emotional distress. Perhaps you're experiencing mental illness, or you have relational strife in your life. Maybe some of you are grieving loss. Whatever you're going through today, I want you to recognize that God wants to meet you in the midst of that weakness. Because the, you have to understand this, because the way that you deal with the pain in your life will determine whether you become resilient or resentful. When you have pain in your life, if you just don't deal with it or you deal with it by stuffing it down and trying to be tough and move on and work through it and put on your happy face, if you do that, what will happen is that pain will fester into bitterness and you will become a resentful person. Not only towards whoever it was that hurt you, but towards everyone in life. But if you take that pain whatever it is you're going through, and you bring it to the Lord. We can experience healing, restoration, forgiveness, renewal in Christ. And then what happens is that suffering and that pain, it doesn't make you resentful, it makes you resilient. Scripture says that suffering produces perseverance in our lives. God wants to use the trials in your life to make you a resilient disciple who relies on God in all that you do. And so what we've seen in this passage is this invitation to embrace weakness as a way of experiencing God's strength so that you can endure with resilience. But all of this is grounded in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus Christ. See, we, we talked about how Paul was not impressive by worldly standards, but Jesus even more so. He had no beauty that the world would be attracted to him. There was nothing about Jesus that looked and said, that's the guy who should be the Messiah. No, people looked at him and said, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? A carpenter's son? There was nothing impressive about Jesus by worldly standards. And when Jesus went to the cross, we have to remember the cross was not impressive in any sense. 
But I have to remind you that we, we think of the cross different today than they would have. We, we see a cross and we might think of love. We think of positive connotations. But in their society, they would have thought the exact opposite. The cross was a symbol of shame. A crucifixion was a form of Roman execution that was designed to physically torture and socially shame the person who was being punished. And so when Jesus hung on the cross, what they saw was weakness and foolishness and defeat. And yet Paul tells the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians, that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, the world can look at a man hanging on the cross, dying, and say, that's weakness, that's foolishness, that's defeat. But we can look at the cross through the lens of faith and say that's power, that's wisdom, that's victory. Why? Because the cross is God's way of saving sinners and renewing his creation. The cross is God's way of taking our guilt and forgiving it, of taking our shame and removing it and cleansing us. The cross is God's way of reconciling us to God so that we can be forgiven and renewed and adopted into the family of God and God can be shown to be loving and just and holy and wise. And so Jesus died on the cross for our sins that we could know God and be in a relationship with him. And then he rose from the grave so that we could have new life and we could experience abundant resurrection life today. And yet, that abundant resurrection life follows the pattern of our crucified and resurrected Savior. And so we are called to die to ourselves, to deny ourselves, and walk in Christ every day. So that by faith, we too can say, like the Apostle Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I'll close by telling you this story about a, a, a famous jazz musician named Keith Jarrett. On January 24th, 1974, Keith Jarrett was set to perform a solo piano recital in a famous opera house in Cologne, Germany. There was a sold-out crowd of 1,400 people. And Keith Jarrett came um, to get ready for the show, and there was one problem. There was a young woman named Vera Brandis who had organized this concert, and Keith Jarrett had specifically requested this um, amazing grand piano that would be suitable for such a grand occasion in such a beautiful opera hall. But when he got there, he quickly saw that they got the wrong piano. And instead of this beautiful grand piano, it was a small, old, dilapidated piano that was really unfit to play. The black keys in the middle didn't work, uh, the foot pedals would get stuck, and it was out of tune. And so Keith Jarrett looks at this small, old, dilapidated piano and says, I can't play this. And he turns and walks out. And he's going out to his car as people are flooding in, 1,400 people ready for this performance, and he's on his way to leave. 
And Vera Brandis, this young woman who organized the event, runs after him and she pleads with him, please come back. We have to do this. All these people are coming in. He says, no, I'm not playing that. She begs him to come back. And finally, he relents and he comes back. And he says, if they can get it tuned to where it's even playable. And so they begin tuning the piano and it takes a long time working on this piano, piano even to get it to a place where he could play it. And finally, at 11.30 at night, with 1,400 people waiting for this show, Keith Jarrett sits down at this piano and begins to play. And almost as soon as he started playing, everybody recognized that something magical was happening. For over an hour, he improvised on this piano playing it different th differently than he would another piano. He was playing it harder because it was smaller and wasn't, didn't produce as much sound. He was avoiding certain keys because they didn't work. He was in a different mindset. And every everyone began to recognize something, is spe something special is happening. And after playing for over an hour, not only did Keith Jarrett get through this performance, it was what most people considered to be the best performance of his life. And the recording of that concert went on to be the number one selling jazz piano album of all time. And here's why I tell you that story. Because even a broken instrument can be used to make something beautiful in the hands of an artist. And you might come here today feeling broken, feeling weak, feeling inadequate, but no matter how weak and insufficient you feel, God wants to write a song of redemption in your life. No matter how, how broken you are, God can create something beautiful in and through you. No matter how much you're hurting, God can orchestrate a glorious work in your life. And so if you're here today and you feel weak, it's okay to be weak. God is strong. You can embrace your weakness as a way of experiencing God's strength and endure faithfully to the end. I want to close us in prayer, but before I do, let's take a moment to just silently reflect and pray and ask God into our hearts and into our lives to lead us as we prepare to respond.